welcome everybody. Um, I do want to just extend quickly an invitation to membership if you're not a member of the church. Uh, we always mention that you don't have to sign up. I think one day it occurred to us, it was like, well, people are scared of the, or, or member, become members scared of the idea or nervous about commitment or whatever. I signed up for this four weeks. Um, most people who go through membership do become members. That's just a fact. Um, reason being, I think what you'll find if you're a part of this church for any length of time is we are very much a what you see is what you get kind of a church. And um, whereas the, the membership classes are very valuable because we get to have a lot of interaction and communication together about what the values are of the church, what we really stand for. We go through the beliefs together. We go through everything to make sure that um, before we say, let's go on together in fellowship and membership, uh, everybody understands what's going on. But, um, but we don't, we're, not, we're a church. We really, we really strive to do um, the thing, practice what we preach in that sense that we don't have, we're not having secret hidden fights and problems and issues and politics and all this other stuff. We really do um, seek to live in the light as a church. So when you come into membership, for most people, it becomes just, an, just a reaffirmation that what they thought was so is actually so. And um, we have a simple ministry model in this church. Um, if the Bible teaches it, we try to teach it and support it and believe it and practice it. If it's, if it's not taught in the Bible, you know, we, we, we treat those things with caution. But in general, we, we, we are trying to really have every single piece of the ministry of the church that is built expressly on the teachings of the word of God. Because we do not want to have, um, anyway, you can build on the wisdom of men or you can build on the word of God. And we believe that building on the word of God is, is uh, well, I guess, well, I guess what I personally believe, and I probably this is a shared belief, is that if, if, you, if the word of God is the foundation, Jesus will build on it. If the, if the wisdom of man is the foundation, then men are left to build it. And I sure don't want to be responsible for building a church and trying to and get God to bless it. I am willing to be a worker in his harvest, but, I, but Jesus has to build his church. That's a, that's a, a firmly held conviction. So membership is a place where you can come and see whether or not what I just said is true about the heart of the church. And I, it is true. And um, we invite you to come if you have not joined in membership. So let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your fellowship with us and that we are not alone. We're not, we have each other and we have close fellowship with the Son of God, the Lord of glory. Thank you that we can enter into your presence with boldness, with fullness of joy. Lord, and and in, in, uh, at your right hand, the scripture says, our pleasures forever. That you are the desire of our hearts and the satisfaction of every desire of our hearts. Lord God, we want to come to you this morning and all just, just spread ourselves out before you and just say, Lord, here we are. And we've gathered for this purpose, Lord, for, to, be, to be edified and built up in the word of God, to be strengthened um, as the children of God, to walk as children of light in this world, and to walk together in fellowship unhindered, Lord God, in unity by the Spirit. And I pray in your name that you'd use your word, Lord, that you'd send forth your word this morning, your word, to accomplish what you send it to do, Lord, and that it would not return void without doing it. And we believe that that is true. And that, that is what you do, Lord, with your word. And I pray, oh God, that we would be um, the happy recipients of the grace that comes as we receive your word. 
And I pray, God, it'd go deep into our hearts and be a seed that produces a crop for the one who sowed it. 30, 60, and 100 times what was sown for the glory of God and for Jesus' name, in whose name we pray, amen. So the series that I concluded last week, Healing the Family, um, I'm doing one more message (laughs) to to conclude, to, to sort of bring a wrap up. And I didn't want to, I was going to just make this one kind of a standalone message. Uh, you know, you can see the title, Confrontation and Reconciliation, but it ties so much into what we've been going through. My wife said, it's a lot easier for me if I don't have to make a new graphic. And I said, okay, just plug in the title then and I'll apologize to everybody for saying it was over when actually it wasn't. Um, but the series is, um, I, has, it has done a lot. And I'll tell you what, the fast, fasting and praying, I mean, you know, you want to talk about we're, we're teaching on things. We're practice, learn, trying to practice those things. And then we've got people fasting and praying and calling out our names and our kids' names and our family's names before the throne of God. Well, you do two things. You, draw, you begin to draw the blessing of God down from heaven by faith, which God already wants to give. He's a generous God. He wants to. He waits for us to ask. The blessings of God begin to come in through the, by faith and through the prayers of his people, and you stir up a hornet's nest in the kingdom of darkness. And so what happens is the refining fires are burning underneath. The impurities are rising to the top. God is working. The devil is resisting. And we're in the thick of it. And, and if you don't know, that's what the Christian life is like a lot of the time. We are, we are in a spiritual war. And when you're disengaged, you're not a threat. So you, and you don't experience a lot of resistance when you're not a threat. But when you engage in the fight, when you take it to the enemy, when you take it, when you go to God and, and call on his name and then you let him equip you by the spirit and then you start to fight for the things that matter, you're a threat. And when you become a threat, you come under attack. And when you come under attack, that's tangible. You're aware that it's happening, but it's spiritual, so it's also invisible. So it's confusing and it's frustrating. And you're going, are these just my, why am I in this emotional state? Have you, ever had, have you ever had negative thoughts about a person that you love cycling in your mind and you can't get them to stop? What do you think that is? Well, I'm just a negative person, I guess, deep down. Well, maybe. And that'd be something to, to take before the Lord. But, but the accuser of the brethren is in your ear telling you, not don't let it go, don't let it go, don't let it go. You're trying to forgive, don't let it go. They're, no, they're as bad as ever. That person... And pointing out their faults, and of course, never mentioning yours. And um, the accuser just working. And so uh, we've been hearing a lot of people saying like, man, God's working in my family, working with my kids, working with my marriage, doing all these things. Um, but we just feel like a, a lot of stuff's been stirred up, but, but the work's not finished yet. Well, I want to point out a couple of things. First of all, when God starts a work, he carries it on to completion. So I want to encourage you with that. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's not going to quit until it's done. So if God began the work, guess what? You can can be sure that you just stay with him, keep walking with him, stay the course. He's not finished working, and neither should you be. So this is is an exhortation and encouragement to you. Um, The other thing to consider is that, that, well, yeah, he's not going to stop working, but two... um, there's just a lot that, there are things in God's heart and in his mind for you that you have not considered yet. Things for your family, things for your marriage, things, un, the Bible calls it unplowed ground. 
Break up your unplowed ground. You have unplowed ground. And the first thing he has to do is make, it, make you aware of the unplowed ground because you know, we get into routines and we kind of say, well, this is all there is. But then God opens your eyes to see, you kind of look over the fence, so to speak, and it's like, oh, well, here's all this. I didn't know that was possible. And there are things that are possible in your relationships that God wants to open your eyes to. So we're not going to stop. But I wanted, what I wanted to do today is to give you tools for reconciliation, for confron- tools for confrontation, because you need, how many know you need tools to know how to do a confrontation, right? And then you also need tools for reconciliation, and, um, because neither one of those things are easy. First of all, people succumb to fear, and, and, and then they start to make excuses, and so they don't confront problems. And then reconciliation, um, we, we, we succumb to pride and refuse to repent, and so we don't experience the fullness of restoration the way that God wants us to. So um, I hope this is something that's a blessing to you. Uh, my pastor years ago used to say to us, he'd say, you know, he said, I tell people in marriage counseling, he said, we start at the beginning. And he said, he said, most people, he said, I tell them, you don't have a marriage problem. You have God problems. And he's not literally saying you don't have a marriage problem. He's saying your problem is stemming from a problem, a broken place in your relationship with God. And I think it's really important for us to understand and to stop and think about um, why it is that we have such different ways of processing the same information. You have an experience with another person, maybe somebody, if we're talking about the family, who probably lives in your house. And um, you, you experience the same things, but you have two very different takeaways from the same experience. You know, and... And what I want to show you, as we're going to see here in just a minute, is that so much of the brokenness in our relationships comes from problems that are broken places in our own relationship with God. And I'm not denying that there's, that there's sinfulness and things, but sin is a broken, brokenness in your relationship with God. The sin that I walk in is something that's broken in my relationship with God. Um, the, the priorities that I have, they're not God's priorities. The things that are interests of mine, that make me shut out, you know, another person that I care about, shut out their interests to pursue my own selfishness. That's a broken place in my relationship with God. And so first we want to try to understand where um, the problems come from, how we can arrive at different conclusions when we're processing the same information, and then see how do we act, actively engage in reconciliation together. Um, and I want to remind you of one other thing, which is this. We are all ministers of the gospel, and we are all ministers of reconciliation. Every single one of us. You know, we give certain special titles to people who hold ministry positions or whatever, but in the kingdom of God, God doesn't recognize titles the same way that people do. There's callings and there's other things like that. But every single one of us has been given the gospel as a ministry of our life, and every single one of us has been given the ministry of reconciliation and the scripture around reconciliation says specifically that, that Paul, he said, he said, I implore you, be reconciled to God. And, reconcil- and so what I want to show you is just as a matter of priority, reconciliation to God comes before reconciliation to man. You try to fix your problems with people, but your God problems are still messed up. You know, God is the source of all life. He, all grace flows down from the throne of grace. So if you want to give grace, guess what? A lot of times you've got to receive grace. What are you, how are you going to give something that you don't have? I'm not a patient person, Lord. Give me patience. Well, he gives you patience. He trains it into you. He works it in you by the Holy Spirit. 
And then you can start to give patience. You can start to show patience, but you can't be or show something that you don't have. So first we heal the broken places with God and then we can begin to heal things with other people, but we are all involved in, this, in these ministries. So in James chapter four, <clears throat> we're talking about problems and where they come from. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And just a little side note, isn't it nice that the Bible pretty well addresses almost every issue that really, ma- I would say probably every issue that really matters to us and addresses them head on. I just appreciate that the Bible is not a religious book in the sense of human religious stuff where it's just like, let's just utter a bunch of niceties and say that's what, that's what it means to be a Christian. It's like, how about we get real and raw real quick? You guys are fighting with each other and it's getting bad. So have you stopped to consider where it's coming from? What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. This is where he begins. He said, you have desires and in some sense or another, they're not being fulfilled. You have expectations and you have desires and they're waging war within you. They're not being fulfilled and you're blame shifting. You're back in the garden of Eden. It was the woman you gave me, Lord. No, it was the snake. Everybody's passing the buck. You know what I mean? And they kept passing it and it landed on Jesus. Do you know that? No one would take responsibility for sin. And Jesus said, I'll take responsibility for all of it. And he was the spotless lamb. And so that's a, that's a real shift in our understanding, isn't it? Because the human nature, sinful nature shifts the blame. Spiritual nature accepts responsibility because we are sons of God. We're learning to do just what Jesus did. We say, well, I can find a way in which I'm 1% not at fault. And then I excuse myself from the whole thing. You see how we do that? Self-justification. But in a, in a spiritual sense, we, we, have to, we learn to be like, Jesus was 0% at fault. And he said, I'll take responsibility for the 100%. I said, I'll take the whole thing. So I just, this, is a, this is a shift in, from being carnal to being spiritual. And it's also a shift from immaturity to maturity. The only way that we're going to have healthy relationships is if we grow up is if we go on from the things of childhood and begin to do the right thing. So he says, what's the source of the quarrels? It's your pleasures. You want what you want and you want it when you want it. And when you don't get what you want, you, you blame shift and you stir up and cause and have problems with other people in your life. And then in verse two, you lust and do not have. We talked about this um, last week. I think it was last or two weeks ago, whenever it was last week. So you commit murder. This is how far it can go. You are envious and cannot obtain. You want what other people have and you can't get it so you fight and you quarrel. And then he says, you do not have because you do not ask. You don't realize how much would be settled just by asking. You ask and do not receive. And by the way, can I just say this? You do not have what you do not ask. How many problems do you have in a relationship today because you don't communicate with the person you have a problem with? I want you to discern my expectations. That's what I want from you. And they said, well, if you would just tell me, then I would know. And so communication is central to, to all of this. And this is the same thing. We quote this always with regard to prayer, and it is about prayer, but it also pertains to relationships. If you have expectations, needs, desires, have you ever started with just a little simple communication and said, 
hey, this is something that I need. This is something that I desire from you. And then, and let the person go, oh, I never knew that. And now you have a basis for, for rebuilding, but communication. And then he says, and this we, I do believe is more specifically geared toward prayer. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it in your pleasures. So selfish asking, you know, well, I, I want certain things, but I want them just for me. And it's just, it's just for me. And then James, in his very polite way, says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So he calls them adulteresses because this is the bride of Christ being unfaithful to the bridegroom. And, he's, and so what, what's the unfaithfulness? Your heart's desires are oriented in an entirely different way than what God desires for you. God wants you to love him and his kingdom and his glory first. And what does the Bible say? Seek first, right? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what happens after that? Everything else is added to you. And he says, what you do is you go to the end of that proposition and you say, I'm gonna seek first all the things that I want. And then I'll add a little religion and a little spirituality to that once I've got everything that I want. That's, that's more of like the, the materialistic Western way. Um, and it doesn't work. It destroys relationships. First, it destroys relationship with God, and after that, it destroys relationship with people. He says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So how's your religion gonna go if you love the world more than you love God? Well, not so well, because you've made yourself an enemy of God. So he's talking about the orientation of your heart. What's the most important thing? Is the kingdom of God first? Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. That is one of the most confusing ways I've ever heard something phrased. Um, Just being honest, the little part in quotations there, it's translated in dramatically different ways all across different translations. But essentially what it's saying is that God has put a spirit in you and he is jealous for the purity of that spirit. God wants your whole heart. He wants your, his spirit to have full possession of your spirit. God is a jealous God. That's the, that's the essence of what that means. He said, do you think that God said it for no reason, that he wants your whole heart? But he gives a greater grace. So we're getting into the good news now, right? <laughs> you were like, wow, how destitute and how broken are we as people? And the answer is, yeah, it can get pretty bad. But he comes in with this word of redemption and he says, but he gives a greater grace. Grace is greater than our faults, greater than our sin, greater than, um, greater than all the temptations that we face and sometimes give into. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So he's giving a challenge there and he's saying, grace is greater. By grace, you can overcome every single thing that hinders you, everything that breaks your relationship with God, everything that breaks your relationship with man. Grace is greater than all those things. And the one thing that's required is that you humble yourself before God. The one thing he wants is for you just to say, oh God, I'm desperate, I need help, and I can't do it without you. And then when you put yourself in humility before God, he comes through and gives a greater grace and helps us to overcome Verse seven, submit therefore to God. He's saying, humble yourself, submit yourself to God. 
Resist the devil and he'll flee for you, from you. Remember what I said just a moment ago. It's a spiritual war. And he's acknowledging the reality. You're not just doing the wrong thing and saying the wrong thing and being selfish and all this just because. You're being tempted to do those things, tempted to say certain things at certain times. And when we give in to those things, it's destructive. And then in verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You, your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. He's saying, don't resist it. If you're, if you're experiencing grief over your own sin and transgression, he's saying, don't resist that. Let the work of God do its work. If you, don't say, no, no, I shouldn't, I, shouldn't, no, I shouldn't feel this way. No, if there's misery and mourning and just let it work because it's working something in you. Let your laughter be turned, let it happen. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. He's not saying God is condemning you to a life of gloom. He's saying when it's time to repent, it's, it's a, there's a time to be sad. There's a time, as the scripture says, to put your mouth in the dust for there may yet be hope. That's how it's written in uh, Lamentations. There is a time to put off all the distractions of laughter and every other thing and actually let the sadness over the sin that's been in your life, let, let, let it work itself through. And he says, this word of hope, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So you take the lowest place and then when the time is right and God's work has been finished or at least for that season, he'll lift you up. God will carry you out. God will be the one who brings you through. So that's a lot, isn't it? We could have kept going. The, the, this, this whole thing is like, it's full. But there's, there's a lot there. So I want to just do a quick kind of just touch on each of these main points. So first of all, why we fight to kind of a synthesis of what he just said. Our pleasures, our desires. We fight because we have conflict and expectations and issues around our desires. We have envy. We simply, we, we perceive inequity and we want things from other people and we, and we desire those things. He said, you have not because you ask not. Prayerlessness. Did you know that a prayerless person will have constant strife? Because when you're prayerless, striving is all you have left. Is God central in your calculations? Is God central? I have a problem. God, what should I do? Is God first? Is, is prayer the default mode of your life or are you prayerless and, and striving? trying to fix everything yourself. Well, you know what? That person hurt my feelings. So I'm going to think for a little bit about the right things I ought to say. And I'm going to just get right up in their face and tell them what I think. Well, you should stop and ask God, should I say these things? What's going to happen if I say these things? Worldliness. Um, that's just simply, anyway, we'll get into what these, each of these things are. But if you're, if you're worldly, but you're trying to work on, on relationships, you're going to have constant strife and problems. Because the, the world's, if the world's setting your values, you're not going to be able to have relationships with people because, because God is always going to have you value people more than things. The world will always have you value things more than people. Your own desires more than other people and what's best for them. Pride. We fight because we're proud. We don't like to admit we're wrong. It makes us feel bad to be wrong. Have you ever just been listening to somebody say something to you and you go, yep, I was wrong. And the feeling inside of you is like, man, I hate being wrong. <laughs> it's like, I just hate being wrong, but here I am faced with it. I got a couple of choices. I can own it, which is painful, 
but that's the right way. I'll just go ahead and give you the clue on that one. I can be silent or I can deny it. And people take one of those paths. And um, being silent about it is not good because you need to own it when you're wrong. And being uh, denying it is, of course, lying. Uh, it's self-deception. And it, and it begins to harden your conscience so that you're not really able to, to be corrected in the future as you need to be. Um, and then, of course, there's the devil. He's talked about resisting the devil and the devil, you know, temptation, deception, the, the works of the kingdom of darkness that are opposing us while we try... Um, if we walk with God to try to do the right things. So pleasures are those things in which we inflexibly demand our own way, insisting others sacrifice to do what pleases us. We have that slide. There it is. So that's what pleasures are in this context. Envy talked about, it's like coveting, wanting what another has and becoming bitter over a perception of unfairness. I'm not getting a fair deal here. <clears throat> Prayerlessness is God forgetfulness. Living as if there were not a God who hears prayer and helps those who ask. Worldliness means the world establishes my values rather than God. So these are things like, you know, worldliness is the opposite of godliness. Godliness means God establishes all my values. What God values, I value. What God says is worthless, I say is worthless. That's godliness. Worldliness is, the world says, this is awesome. God says, that's destructive. And I say, no, it's awesome. It's just me simply, it's me agreeing with the world against God. That's what worldliness is. And if we are honest, we do that a lot more than, we, than we'd like to admit. But worldliness, you know, so it's values. We've got to let God establish our values if we're going to have success in relationships with him and a relationship with God and then out of that with other people. Pride then, he talks a lot about humbling yourself. God's opposed to the proud. Pride is the devil's sin if you know the story of how Satan fell from heaven. Lifting our hearts above God. Seeking for ourselves the things that belong to God like glory, exaltation, reputation, power. I want to be in control. I want to run things. I want people to do what I say when I say it. I want to be like God commanding the angels in my household. That's what I want it to be like. I want to be unopposed. I don't ever want anybody to tell me I'm wrong. You know, it's, it's just this, this total, it's a lot of self-deception, but pride never wants to be wrong, never wants to be opposed, wants to be enthroned above everything else. And it's simply not where we belong. And then, of course, the devil, he said, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. The devil, think about this. The devil is the tempter, he's the liar, and he's the accuser. So to, to have the kingdom of darkness working against you, it's like, oh my goodness, think about this. You're being tempted to do and say things that are not good. The liar is telling you they are good. And then the accuser is telling you how bad the other person is. And so you've got to... We got to really get serious about this, right? And taking every thought captive is central here. If you listen to all the stuff that runs on repeat in your brain, you're going to be totally frustrated and confused all the time. When you recognize that there's just nasty stuff going on in your head, you have to tell it to shut its mouth. You have to, you have to make it go away. You have to stop yourself in the middle of it and say, why is all of this going on in my head? And as I mentioned before, you'll notice it always justifies you 
and tells, the, tells you how bad the other person is for some variety of reasons. And that's one of the chief identifiers because the devil is proud and he appeals to your pride. So we have to submit to God, fight the fight, and resist the devil. It's the only way we're going to succeed. And you'll notice um, that I'm, I'm talking to you about your own heart because the way that you're going to make it through on this stuff with conflict, what did I call the message? Confrontation and reconciliation. You're not ready for a conflict as soon as you're offended. Can I just say, did you guys hear me say that? You're not ready to have the confrontation if you, if, you're, if you're just reacting immediately to an offense. You are not ready. You need to pull away, and there are a lot of things that need to happen in your own heart before you talk to a person, if you really want reconciliation. If you don't want reconciliation, well, guess what? You can get self-justification and destroy the relationship. That's what you can get, reacting in your flesh in the moment. So even though the Bible says, don't let the sun go down in your anger, if you're going to say hurtful things before you go to bed to get it out, then let the sun go down, bind the devil, cast down all his work, do all that, ask God for grace and say, say, I love you and I want our relationship to be good, but I'm not ready to talk about this. Can we talk about it tomorrow? And then get alone with God. And when you know you've received grace, have the communication. And I'm saying that's important. And I'm big on not letting the sun go down. But I've run into situations in my own life where a few hours wasn't enough time. I, I, I didn't have the grace I needed. And I knew if I communicated what I was thinking right then and there, it was not going to be good. Does that make sense? Anybody else have that happen in your life too? Okay. Just making sure I'm not defying the word of God. I'm just saying sometimes it takes more than one day to work through some things. But here's the truth. Conflict is often the only door that leads us into a new season relationally. Is that your view of conflict? Conflict is a door. You know what a fight is? I learned this in counseling. I've been to counseling. My wife and I go to counseling periodically, not because we have a bad marriage, but because we have a pretty good marriage that we want to be better. And we also work on stuff. You know, we run into walls just like everybody else does. Hey, we've had the same confrontation. Sometimes it is. We've had the same conversation four or five times and we're not making any progress. Why don't we ask somebody else to listen to us and mediate and help us work through it? And that's what counseling is. So don't be ashamed if you need to see a counselor. It's a good thing if it's biblical counseling. Um, But um, I've learned that conflict is a door. Non-confrontational people don't make much progress in relationships because they ignore stuff and they say they're extending grace. That's the Christian terminology for non-confrontation. I'm just extending grace. You know what I'm doing? The Bible says it's to a man's glory to overlook an offense. You overlook all offenses, your heart's gonna turn totally bitter toward the other person and you will not be able to have a relationship with them and everything will be superficial and phony. So confrontation is a doorway that leads you into a new season. You gotta see it that way. Because some of you are afraid of conflict. You don't want to have a conversation. So you run away from it. And I'm telling you, if you see it as a door, it's like, well, we're in the winter season right now and it's cold and dark. But I want to get to spring. How do you get to spring from winter? Well, you have a conflict and the conflict, you have the conflict you've been avoiding, have the conversation, talk about it. And then the door slowly opens and on the other side, you can see. Picture it, the birds are chirping. The wind is 
lightly blowing. The trees are slowly swaying. The sun is shining. That's where you want to be, right? That's where I want to be. But you got to go through the door. We're talking about going through the cross, not around it. You got to go through the door of conflict to get into the new season because this is what I, I mean, I started this, con- this started this sentence about 10 minutes ago. What I learned in counseling was that a fight is forced communication. You weren't communicating and so everything bottled up and built up pressure and then you had a fight because you weren't communicating along the way. Well, now you've had a fight, but guess what? You finally said what you meant, didn't you? All this time, you've been half saying stuff, trying to do this, trying to skirt the issue or whatever. Well, now you've said it. And now, now that you've said it, you've got to deal with it. And that's a good thing. And so if you, come, if you approach these things the right way, you can work through and come out the other side with reconciliation, which is the goal. So here's my point. Here are the biblical essentials of conflict resolution. First of all, begin with the end in mind. Reconciliation is the goal of confrontation. There are, you know what I mean? Like you, we picture confrontation like two opposing armies going to war with each other. You know, if the goal, the goal is to kill and shed as much blood as possible, it's not going to be good. I'm just gonna go ahead and put that out there. Even when armies go to war, even when nations go to war with each other, there has to be a higher aim than war, doesn't there? Well, we wanna put down this evil so that some good can result, right? That's a, better, that's a better goal. Well, that's what a real confrontation is like. Reconciliation's on the other side of this, but we gotta go through the door of conflict. So we gotta go through the door. But, but have this, go ahead and fix it in your mind. Reconciliation is the goal of confrontation. Last week I said, Jesus, Jesus said specifically that he, or the scripture says of Jesus, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The cross was the conflict, but it wasn't the goal in and of itself. It was essential though. Could, would you, could you say we would have the faith we have today if not for the cross? Never, never, it had to happen. It was essential. It was the shedding of blood so that we could be reconciled to God. Well, what if you saw conflict in your life as essential as the cross? We're, gonna, we're not agreeing, so we have to get on the same page. And that's what the cross did. It put us on the same page with God. Not instantly, but it, in some ways it did. But you get the point. Reconciliation is the goal of confrontation. And the joy that's on the other side is what has to be the motivation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Let me ask you this question. We're ta- I'm talking to people who, by and large, are in Christ. If you're not, let this word speak to your heart. In Christ, new things are always possible. Do you believe that? About your friend, about your, your, your spouse, about your child, about your brother or sister, whoever it is, do you believe that to be true? That in Christ, new creatures are always being made? And do you believe that, that where, our relate, where, our, where we're still broken, God has more to do? There's more newness that he wants to bring there? Well, reconciliation or, or confrontation and reconciliation are the way that these things very often happen. He says, all these things are from God, who what? Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So he reconciled us. 
through the cross, through Christ, to himself, and then said, now you guys get out there and do the same thing. Do what same thing? Well, go through the conflict with people and gather them up for God. Help people get their relationships with God right. And if you've got brokenness in your own relationships, get those things right. And let's just do reconciliation everywhere all the time. Gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That is is just mind-blowing to me. This picture of the cross, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And not counting their trespasses against them, that's an important phrase, isn't it? The way that God's forgiven us, not counting our trespasses against us. And then Jesus said, you've got to forgive other people from the heart the same way you've been forgiven. What does that mean? Not counting their trespasses against them anymore. I see some people staring. I see people, I think, thinking. I see a little bit of nodding. This is, uh, I'm not saying it's easy. All I'm saying is there's grace for this, a greater grace. If we'll humble ourselves, a greater grace will come in and impossible things become possible. And then you find that there's something of the kingdom of God to be had in the earth in our relationships. Isn't that incredible? The kingdom come in your relationships in the earth. All right, so let me give you, we're we're working on um, relational reconciliation or conflict resolution tools. Uh, Here here is uh, another key point to this. You might've heard this phrase before, hurt people hurt people. Have you ever heard anybody say that? When somebody's hurt, they hurt other people. Hurt people hurt people, but here's the truth. God's people heal people. We're not, you've been hurt, I get it. But but it's the flesh that makes you want to go back and hurt the other person. It's not the spirit. God's people heal people. Refuse to satisfy the evil desire to cause the other person pain. This is the whole thing. Why are we going to have a conflict? So I can get them back. Of course. They hurt me. So what am I going to do? I know exactly where their pressure points are and I'm going to go right after it. No, that's, that's, how you set, that's how you hand somebody a grenade with a pen pulled. That's, what's that going to do to your relationship? It's going to be utterly destructive. The goal has to be reconciliation, but it has to be bringing healing to the other person because just as much as you need to forgive them, they need to be forgiven by you. And that works, that river runs both ways, that street runs both ways because uh, we need the healing that comes from the reconciliation just as much as we need to to forgive and to move on and so on. So the principle here is take the lowest place. Take the lowest place. What did Jesus do? Took the lowest place. It's a race to the bottom. The first one to humble himself will be the first one to receive grace. So if you get into a conflict and there's a fire starting and the fire's spreading and it's getting out of control, the first person to take the lowest place will, will begin to put that fire under control. The fire will stop spreading. The first, as soon as you say, you know what, that's true. I was wrong when I said that. That's, that's a, that's, you'll, the fire stops spreading all of a sudden and the other person, 
They're still angry. And some people like the fire. Do you know what I'm talking about? They like the feeling, the burn. It's like, you know, we've been, and sometimes it's like we've been needing to work this out. And now here's the opportunity. So they're just pouring gas on this thing. And it's just a misunderstanding is all this, a misunderstanding of how it works and what the point of this, the conflict even is. But, but you can stop the spread of the fire and then you can begin to put it out. Did you know the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath? I, when I was a kid, I tried that. My mom had told me that. I was like, I'm gonna see if this Bible stuff's true. So somebody said something to me, one of my brothers or somebody said something to me, or, or no, or, or yeah, whoever it was, said something to me in a real nasty voice and I just turned around and I thought, okay, here it is. And I said, okay, no problem. And I just watched the whole fire just went out. They said, really? I said, yeah, no problem, I'll do that. And they walked away and I was like, boy, that was like legit. <laughs> like that actually, like the soft answer turned away wrath. Like the wrath left the room. You know what I mean? Like, we're, but, but what, what pride makes me want to shout and scream and fight for my rights. And, and, and the humility of Christ says, take the lowest place. You don't need to explain everything. You don't even need to get what you think you deserve. You can settle this right now and you can put the fire out if you'll humble yourself. In the moment, it doesn't feel very natural. But you know what I mean? You can be very calculating about it sometimes too and just say, I just know this is right, so that's what I'm gonna do. And you just put yourself through the paces. It's a discipline because you're learning to live a different way. The first one to humble himself will receive grace. Philippians 2, 3 through 7 says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Do nothing that simply benefits you. But with humility of mind, that's humble thinking, Regard one another as more important than yourself. Who's more important in this scenario? They are. How, can, how do I know it's them and not me? Well, because there's two people in this scenario and each one is tasked with the same responsibility to consider the other person more important. So if there's someone else in the scenario, they're more important. And that's a decision that you make in your mind. I'm gonna consider them more important than me. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Look out for their interests. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, think about this, the highest one. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. When his father said, all right, son, it's time for you to go into the world, and you're gonna be born as a baby to a poor family in a stable and, uh, and then you're gonna, care, you're gonna grow up and you're gonna deal with all the stuff that people deal with as they, as they grow up in the world and then you're gonna bear the sins of the world and laid out the whole picture for Jesus. Jesus didn't say, no, I'm gonna stay here. Thank you though. Thanks for the offer. So maybe one of these angels could go do that. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he let go of it. He said, I'm gonna let all this glory go. He was entitled to all that glory, by the way. And he let all of it go and took the lowest place. But emptied himself, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. All the glory of God in a baby. 
and ultimately in a, in a human man. But Jesus didn't turn away from it. He took the lowest place, and so he was an instrument of redemption to all of us. So t- you have to take the lowest place. A humble person, I've learned this, a humble person can get along with just about anybody. A proud person can't get along with the humble and can't get along with the kindest person. I'm just, but a humble person, they can work it out because they just, they don't have to have their way all the time. They don't have to have, you know what I mean? They're just, they're, they, they know what they're used to just laying down even their rights and just saying, no, it's not a big deal. I'm not gonna make a big deal about that. All right, that's the principle of uh, low, take the lowest place. The next principle for um, conflict resolution is walk in the light. Walk in the light. You got to want the light. If you want darkness, you're not going to succeed. If you want things to remain hidden, you're not going to succeed. If you don't want to deal with your own problems, you're not going to succeed. If you only want light for other people, you're not going to succeed. You'll notice I'm still talking to you about your heart. You're like, well, at what point is he going to tell me about how to deal with this other person that I don't like, that I don't like right now? <laughs> We're going to get there, how to, how to work through that. But walk in the light. Be open to the truth about any part you've played in the breakdown of the relationship. Be open to the truth. You know what I mean? And what I've found in almost every situation of conflict is nobody's in, there's never an innocent party. Only with Jesus was there ever a truly innocent party. In every other conflict or problem, both people are somehow involved. And I, 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 but I do, in trying to be fair with all these things, you do a lot of times get an imbalanced split. You've got a 75-25 situation where this person's a little wrong and this person's a lot wrong, but they're both wrong. And this is the point. Just because the other person's more wrong than you, maybe they initiated the problem or whatever it is, you still have to stop, quiet your own heart and ask God, show me where I have been wrong. Did I feed this problem? Did I stir it up in any way? Did I have any part to play? And then when you've realized what it is that you did that was wrong, you repent of what you did. You know what I mean? This is what I was talking about earlier about self-justification. It's like, well, they're more wrong than I am, so they owe me an apology. It's like, no. If you really care about reconciliation, usually, let me tell you this, this is true most of the time, to get the 75% wrong person to change their heart and mind, the 25% person has to start it. So much of the time you see this because the other person's wrong a lot because they're very proud. The other person's not quite as proud. And so... If you're the one who has enough grace to humble yourself, then you humble yourself and watch and see what God will do. Don't wait for the other person. You'll be waiting the rest of your life. But you can initiate the incoming of grace by by humbling yourself. And then guess what? The channels start to flow from heaven. And through you now, the other person who couldn't even contemplate repentance sees it, sees you doing the right thing and it starts to break down their pride. I'm telling you if, you, if you care about reconciliation, you, don't, it's, you know, it's best if both people are, are, are oriented in the same way, that's best, but it's not always possible. But if you take the lowest place, you can see the grace of God work in your relationships. And that's the truth. So walk in the light, own your part. You have to do that. Every person has to do that. In 1 John 1, 6 through 8, it says, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That means God doesn't play relationship games. 
God is, he's real about stuff. It's like, you pretend that you have a relationship with me, but you walk in sin. No, you don't walk with me. You walk with sin. I'm not gonna pretend everything's good if everything's not good. So God doesn't play games. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light and God is completely in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So walking in the light, he sees God doesn't demand perfection to have relationship. Do you see that? He says, you just gotta walk in the light. If you're wrong, own it. Walk in the light. Let the light shine on it. If I shine the light on something, I, all, all I expect you to do is say, yeah, that's true. I was wrong in that. Please forgive me. And God says, then we can walk together. And if you're willing, that's the only way you're gonna be able to walk with people is if that's the same attitude that you have. When we bring stuff up, when we address it, I own my part, you own your part, we both repent, we both accept each other's apologies and we begin to walk together. We can keep walking that way. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So this is the principle that governs human relationships. You gotta walk in the light with God to have relationships with other people, but you gotta walk in the light with other people too. And he says, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. How can I keep from, keep, from just repeating the same transgressions over and over and over again? Well, the blood of Jesus, when you repent, cleanses you. A lot of people avoid repentance because it is so unpleasant. It's true. But did you know that even from a, just a purely, and this is not even the spiritual side of it, just purely the, like the way your brain works, you're, you will avoid unpleasant experiences. If, and so the important thing is to walk through the unpleasantness and let it train you not to repeat the same things. Now that's, human training is not gonna be enough. The blood of Jesus washes it out of you so that the power of it's broken. But that comes when you repent because repentance is effectively laying hold of by faith the blood that was shed for you on the cross and letting it be applied to your sinfulness not just the sinful deed, but your sinfulness, the nature of sin that's still trying to live on even though it was, it was killed at the cross. It's trying to revive. When you repent, you lay hold of the blood of Jesus and it's applied to your sinfulness. And as that happens over and over and over again, you find it manifests less and less and less. And that's sanctification. This is one of the ways that sanctification works. So without repentance, you won't make much progress in godliness, but with repentance, we can change and be transformed and God gets all the glory. And so just so he's not mincing words, he, want, he says in verse eight, if we say we have no sin, if I refuse to own anything, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Can't have a relationship with God on that basis and you cannot have a relationship with any other person on that basis. If you won't own your part, sorry, no relationship. Refuse to justify yourself. This is all tied together. And just as a side note, do not trust your own motives. Jeremiah 17, nine says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And God answers the question in the same passage and says, I, the Lord, know the heart, test the mind. But if you trust your own heart, I mean, you're just, you're, it's a, the basis is deception. You know what I mean? It's like, no, I, when, the, reason I, the reason I said those harsh things to my wife was that I really desired uh, her to be bettered by them. No, 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 you didn't. You wanted to hurt her. 
So start with the truth. Why did you want to hurt her? Oh, oh, that's right, because she hurt your feelings about something. Or, or she, def- she didn't meet some expectation that you had. Or you've been harboring this frustration because you don't communicate and all that's been building up. So then you said this other thing because you wanted to bring harm. So, so repentance is ugly, isn't it? I've got to admit that I wanted to bring harm. I said those things and, I, and the horrible, ugly truth of my heart is I meant them and I wanted to hurt you. That's not fun to say. This is my point. Real repentance is painful. But when you do it, you don't want to repeat it again. And so you deal with the stuff that's going on in your heart. You let the blood of Jesus wash it out of you and you begin to change. Don't trust your own motives, but this is important. Refuse to justify yourself. We'll find 1% that we're right and we'll build our whole case on this little tiny sliver. You know what I mean? It's like a guy who's, who's stranded on an island and the whole island's eroded away except for just enough for him to stand on. And he's saying, but I've still got an island. Well, not for long. You have to refuse to justify yourself and don't trust your own motives. Focus on how you need to change. Still dealing with our own hearts. We're gonna get to the other person. We're almost there. Focus on how you need to change and decide in advance that you will let God deal with the other person. That's a hard, you know what that is? That's hard to do, but you know what that's called? An act of faith. It is an act of faith. I cannot control other people. To try to control other people is called manipulation. Manipulation is forbidden by God in the scriptures. You must not be a manipulative person to try to get your way, to try to get people to repent, try to you know, get your husband to do this or try to get your kid to do this through, through some backdoor means. Manipulation is forbidden. Acts of faith are encouraged. And, but so all you can do is deal with your side of things, right? And then you put their heart before God. Listen to this little snippet from John 21. Jesus has come back from the dead. They're, Peter's been restored. They're walking on the beach and Peter, seeing John following at a distance from, he, I guess he's trying to hear Peter and Jesus' conversation, but John's right back there. Peter sees him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? He wants, he wants to get, you know what I mean? He's had a lot of pressure on him for a while. He's ready for the pressure to be on somebody else. Yeah, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. What about you mind your own business? What about you tend to those things that pertain to you and stop trying to figure out what other people should do? And that's very important. If you're gonna have good relationships and reconciliation, you cannot succumb to manipulation. You can't try to, you know, you know there's all these things that we do. You can encourage the right things and that's not wrong, but, you, but at the same time, um, we have to know where the line is and then we have to ultimately say, but God, I'm putting them in your hands. They belong to you. Let God deal with the other person. All right, here we go. Once these things are settled, you're ready to confront the other person. It's no big deal, right? Just sort through those things. Get yourself positioned in the right place so that you're not gonna go right in there and just cause an explosion. You're ready to confront the other person or, you know, or just or have a conversation. It's time to have an honest discussion about sin, yours and theirs, because remember, we've already settled that we're not gonna justify ourselves, we're gonna own our part and you're ready to seek reconciliation. 
<clears throat> so here's the first thing in the way that you, know, you interact with, with another person in a confrontation. First of all, speak truth with grace. Truth is the substance of our words and grace is the seasoning. I'll tell you why I say that. If you read Colossians 4, verse 6, it says, let your speech always be with grace as though, what? Seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. So grace has to come in. Your words are seasoned with salt. So seasoning is, you know what I mean? If I say, hey, I'd like to order some French fries and they bring me a, well, let's say make it a steak. How about that instead? And, and, I, you know, and, they, and they bring me a plate. Anyway, that's not a good example. We'll go back to the French fries. So you, I order French fries and they bring me a tub of salt with one French fry sitting on top. Well, they kind of did what you wanted, but not really. There's way too much seasoning. And there's people who try, like I said, to be gracious. And, and they can't say anything. They can't seem to say what they mean. And they're just, duh, duh, you know, oh, well, duh, but I know, and I know you didn't mean anything by it, and blah, blah, blah. And they just, they're talking in circles. And it's like, I, there was a guy trying to have a confrontation with me one time who was doing that. And I said, and I said, oh, 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 wait, 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 wait. I've upset you in some way. I need you to tell me what happened. Like, tell me what I did. He was trying so hard not to hurt my feelings. Well, that's when there's too much seasoning. You got to get to the point. So the substance of your words are truth. That's the bucket of fries. And then the grace is the seasoning, a little salt to make it palatable. And you, get, you see that from John 1.14, where it talks about Jesus' words. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Grace is seasoning. Truth is substance. That means the main, the body of your conversation needs to be about the facts without mincing words. But do not be harsh. Don't be nasty. Don't stick those little jabs in there to try to hurt the other person. No, you season it with grace, which means you can give the benefit of the doubt. You can say, maybe you didn't mean it this way, but this is what I heard and this, is, this was the effect. And that's just seasoning with grace and it helps people to receive without stirring up a fire. Does that make sense? So that's the first thing. We speak truth with grace. The next thing, trying to learn. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Listen to learn, trying to understand, but this is how we speak. Speak truth in love and forgive from the heart. So you're gonna seize him with grace because you want them to hear the truth that's important for you to speak. But speaking truth in love is so important. You, the, you, gotta, you gotta really be honest about what's going on in your own heart and you have to know that what you really want is, comes from a desire, a, a true love for that person. I want this person to, to benefit. I want the other person to receive grace. I want the other person, you know, if they need to change, it's not just for my benefit, it's for their benefit. I desire the good that God has for them. Ephesians 4.15 says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So this is, the words grow up, you know, it's maturity. It's, it's, it's our, the progression of our character. When I speak truth to you, it's seasoned with grace because I love you and because I care about your well-being. This is not just about me getting what I want out of a negotiation. This is about you getting what you need and me getting what, what I need too so we can go on together in relationship. 
but we grow up into the, all, in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Let's stand up together. Just kind of sum it up. Love never pretends there are no wrongs to address, but once they've been addressed, love keeps no record of wrongs. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 13. Love, but I, this is important. This is why I say grace and truth, because if you're pretending there's no wrongs to address, that's phony grace. If you're addressing things with truth, seasoning with grace, with real love, and, and you work through something, guess what? It goes into the sea of forgetfulness. It doesn't go into your holster so that you can draw it at the next conflict. It, no, it's gone. If, it's, if you forgive it, it's gone. We're not gonna bring it up again, right? Because isn't that what God does for us? He doesn't bring up the past to try, to try to urge us or coerce us into something else. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And I wanna just encourage you. God gives a greater grace. And to have good relationships, you're gonna need a greater grace. But when you, we humble ourselves and we walk in his word and do the things that he leads us to do, he comes in and makes sometimes some, a, a situation we absolutely dread, but we know we've got to work through something. God comes in and does such an incredible work that what comes out the other side is a beautiful restoration. And I have seen this over and over and over again. And in my experience, 80, 90% of the time, the confrontations that I've been involved in have come out in a positive and in fact, a better light than anything I ever expected. I always pray going into a conflict, Lord, go before me. Would you go before me and, and just go ahead and start doing the work before, before I meet up with this person or these people or whatever it is. And, and would you go ahead and just release grace and open hearts and let's enter into this whole thing just covered in a canopy of grace. And God, by your grace, we'll speak truth and we'll be honest with each other and we'll say the things that need to be said but at the end, we want to be one, not separated anymore. So bring us together and heal us and give us unity. And the Lord has answered that prayer over and over and over and over again. Because guess what? That's our ministry in this world. We can bring it into our homes and apply it in every situation. And God is the one who gives the grace. Lord, thank you. Praise your name and bless you. You are a good God. Nothing is impossible with you. Your power is immeasurable, Lord, and your forgiveness is our example. We have never seen anything like your mercy and your grace. But I pray to the best of our ability and the grace we've received, I pray we would give it away. Work through things in the right way, but also, Lord, extend grace to your people, to one another and to do it in love for your namesake, in your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.